We turn in God's holy word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, that well-known chapter on the resurrection of the body. We read the first 28 verses. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 17 of the Catechism. And this is a Catechism sermon this morning, but we will be paying very close attention to the words of Scripture in this chapter. Uh, So it will be profitable to keep our Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Paul writes here about uh, twenty to twenty-five years after Jesus' resurrection, and many of these people are still living who saw Jesus after his resurrection. Verse 7, After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, now starts the argument. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins." Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, the goal, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. 
for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of that portion of Scripture, and on the basis of many passages of Scripture, that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 17 of the Catechism. Found on page 10 in the back of the Psalter, Lord's Day 17. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by His resurrection He has overcome death that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, The resurrection of Jesus Christ stands at the very heart and center of the gospel and the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the infallible proof and witness that God is the God of our salvation. That He is able and He is willing and He surely shall save us from our deepest woes and make us heirs of everlasting righteousness and life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is of such significance that in it we find all our hope. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't have any hope. Apart from Jesus' resurrection, there is only death and darkness and despair and misery. Apart from Jesus' resurrection, we are still in our sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the infallible declaration that our salvation has been secured and will be fully realized. Whenever you need comfort, beloved, whenever you need comfort and encouragement, I exhort you, look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Consider the implications of the fact that He arose and you will find encouragement and comfort. As the Heidelberg Catechism teaches, there are three main implications of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And we could summarize those three implications with three words. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. First of all, justification. As the Catechism states, by His resurrection He has overcome death that He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He purchased for us by His death. In Jesus' resurrection we have a witness that all our sins have been blotted out. Jesus has completely satisfied God's justice and He has secured for us a righteous standing before God. Romans 4, verse 25, He was raised for our justification. His his resurrection is the proof that we are justified. 
Second of all, sanctification. As the Catechism states, we are by His power raised to a new life. The very life that Jesus took to Himself in His resurrection is the life that He imparts to us at the moment of regeneration. The source of our new life is Christ. And it's found, the source of our new life in Christ is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a word, Jesus' resurrection is the source and power of our sanctification. And then third of all, glorification. Always in that order too. Justification, sanctification, glorification. As the Catechism states, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of the future glorification of our bodies. Justification, sanctification, glorification, glorious truths that are all rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now in the last two sermons we had on the Heidelberg Catechism, we have emphasized in turn the first two of those three things, justification and sanctification. For example, last week, remember, we talked about how our old man has been crucified, dead and buried with Jesus Christ. We were talking about sanctification in that sermon. And if we wanted to, we could, in a sense, repeat that sermon this morning. And instead of talking about the old man being crucified, dead and buried, we can talk now about the new man being quickened and the new man being raised with Christ in his resurrection. So we already talked about sanctification last week. And in the week before, we talked about justification. Remember, we looked at Jesus' honorable burial. And we said that with Jesus' honorable burial, that was a witness. That was an evidence in its own peculiar way that Jesus had died a righteous man. He had died as one who had finished the work he was sent to do and who had blotted out all the sins of his people. It was proof in its own small way of our justification. So we've looked at justification. We've looked at sanctification. This morning we want to do something a little different. And so we're going to approach Lord's Day 17 this morning focused on the third benefit, glorification. That Jesus' resurrection is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. And we're going to engage heavily with what the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 15. So that's the approach this morning. We take as our theme, Christ the first fruits. We look at three things. First, the meaning. This is the, by far the longest point of the sermon. Second, the explanation. And third, the comfort. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 reads, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. In order to appreciate these words, we should first get a clear understanding of the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle is attacking a false doctrine that was present in the church at Corinth. Believe it or not, there were those in the church, there was a faction in the church at Corinth, that was openly denying that there was a resurrection of the body. You read that, for example, in verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, 
How say some among you? They don't even just think these things. They're openly speaking these things. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were some saying, we don't believe there's such a thing as a resurrection of the body. Now that might seem strange to us, but they were members in the church in Corinth. We can't, we can't even conceive Christianity without holding to the resurrection of the body. But there was a group in the church holding to this. Now if we had to guess, I would figure that these people were holding to this position because they were being so influenced by the Greek philosophy in the culture around them. They were more influenced by their culture than they realized. Greek philosophy, at least one segment of Greek philosophy, taught that while a person was living, his body was kind of a a trap for his soul, a prison for his soul. His soul was trapped in his body because they thought that the immaterial, the, the spiritual, the immaterial, was somehow inherently better than the material, than the bodily and physical matter. And so the body was like a prison house for the soul. When a person died, then his soul was freed from the body. And so to Greek philosophy, it would have been foolish to even want to have the resurrection of a body. The soul is better off without it. You don't really want there to be a resurrection of the body. And so some members in the church at Corinth, in their pride, thinking that they really did know better than other people, Right? They're wise in their own conceits. Pride characterized so much of the church at Corinth. They denied the resurrection of the body. Now what they probably would have said was this. Oh, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You, can, you can't be a Christian and deny that Jesus rose from the dead. That's indisputable. But we don't believe that there is a general resurrection of the body, that saints will be raised from the dead. That was their position. And here in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle goes to work refuting that way of thinking and showing that the position they hold is impossible. And the way Paul argues is like this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, as you teach, well then Jesus did not rise either. That's what he says in verse 14. And if Christ be not risen... Verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? They go together, Paul says. Your objection to the idea of a resurrection of the body is too much. Because the fact is Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus is a man. Yes, he's also fully God, but he's also fully man. And if Jesus, the man, rose from the dead, then there is a resurrection of the body. And if you say there's no resurrection of the body, well then that also needs to apply to Jesus. But as we all know, Jesus did rise from the dead. Now in the verses that follow... Paul goes on to explain the implications of their position, of denying the resurrection. Verse 14, If there be no resurrection of the dead, well then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our preaching is useless. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the whole gospel is destroyed and subverted. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then He truly is the Son of God. And he is the savior of the world. His sacrifice has been accepted and God's wrath has been appeased. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, well then none of those things are true. Jesus was not what he claimed to be and his blood is not a ransom for sinners. If that's the case, Paul says, then our preaching is vain. 
Our preaching is empty. It's void of truth and reality and power. There's no point to it. And so is your faith, Paul says. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus Himself did not rise from the dead and you're believing a lie. In verse 15, Paul says, not only is our preaching vain, but we are liars. We are false witnesses. The twelve apostles are liars. The group of over 500 people who saw Jesus at once, they're all liars. Peter's a liar. Mary Magdalene is a liar. And Paul is a liar. And ultimately, Jesus Himself is a liar. Then in verse 17, Paul says, if Jesus has not been risen, then you are still in your sins. You're still under the condemnation of sin. And in verse 18, he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then our loved ones who have died are lost because they believed a lie. And because in the end, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then there's no salvation for anyone. If there's no resurrection of the dead and Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we suffer persecution for nothing. And we are of all men most miserable. He goes on to say, Uh, At the end of verse 32, why don't we just eat and drink and be merry and die tomorrow because if there's no resurrection from the dead and Jesus did not rise from the dead, then there's no salvation to talk about. We might as well live like the world. But then what does Paul say in verse 20? He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. Paul says Jesus is is risen from the dead. There's indisputable evidence for it. He he says this is what has been preached to you. This is what everyone knows. He rose from the dead. How many times was He not seen after His resurrection? We all know that Jesus rose from the dead and the whole gospel of salvation rests on this fact. He is risen from the dead. And now notice what Paul writes. Verse 20. Jesus is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And that's significant. Paul's making an argument here. He's saying, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but we know there's going to be a future resurrection from the dead, a general resurrection of of the saints. He's, He's got God's people in mind in this whole chapter. There is going to be the resurrection of their bodies because Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. Jesus is the firstfruits of the resurrection of God's people. So I hope you see what Paul is doing here. He's proving that there is a resurrection from the dead. And he's not proving it by going back to the Old Testament using proof texts, but he's doing it by pointing to Jesus and saying, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but Jesus is the firstfruits. He's the firstfruits. That's where his argument rests. So now we have to make sure we understand that language. What does that mean, the first fruits? To really appreciate what Paul is saying, we need to understand that Paul is making a reference to the Old Testament. He's using an Old Testament idea. Specifically, he's making reference to the Old Testament feast of first fruits. To help us understand what Paul is saying, we ought to make sure we understand that feast of first fruits. So we Delve into the Old Testament for a moment here. The Feast of First Fruits was closely connected to the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover was held on the 14th day of the first month of the year, the, the month Nisan or Abib, the 14th day of the month. The Feast of First Fruits was held two days later 
on the 16th day of the month. The Feast of First Fruits marks the very beginning of the harvest season. So children, I want you to understand here, when we think of the first month of the year, we think of January, we think of the middle of winter, we think that how can you be harvesting anything in January? Well, for the Israelites, their calendar was a little different. The first month of their calendar was the month when the harvest began. All right? This harvest season, which started on the fir- in the first month, would run for about seven weeks. The, the, the small grain harvest season, you might say, the barley and the wheat that's when that harvest season took place because you also had olives and you had figs and, and that harvest would take place later on in the year. But the barley would be the first crop that would ripen in the fields. And then after the barley, they would immediately get into the harvest of the wheat. But now one of the laws that God gave his people was that before they go out to harvest their crops, before they start harvesting the barley, they would have to do something. They would have to harvest one sheaf of barley and bring it to the temple in Jerusalem. A sheaf is like a bundle or a handful of barley. So the Israelite farmer would take his sickle, he would go out into his field, he would, he would gather together a sheaf of barley, he would harvest it, and then he would take that sheaf of barley to the temple in Jerusalem and he would give it to the priest. And the priest, in turn, would take that sheaf and he would wave it before the Lord as a heave offering or as a wave offering. When we read a wave offering, we think of this. That's not how it was. It was like the wave of the sea going up and down, a wave offering to the Lord. And then that sheaf wouldn't be burnt up. It would be set aside for the use of the priest. This is what the priest would use for his food. And as the first fruits, it was symbolic. That first sheaf of barley was called the first fruits, and all of this was symbolic. That first sheaf represented every sheaf that was going to follow after it in the harvest season. That first sheaf of grain, as the first fruits, represented the whole field, the whole harvest that was still ripening and coming to maturity in the field. And the whole point of doing this was twofold. First, by bringing the first fruits of the barley harvest to the Lord, the Israelite was communicating that all the crops of his field ultimately belonged to the Lord. They came to, from the Lord. God was the one providing this harvest. And then second, by bringing that sheaf to the Lord in the temple, you were also communi- communicating that the harvest itself still belonged to the Lord and the harvest itself was going to be devoted to the Lord. In a sense, the first fruit was the guarantee that the rest of the harvest was going to follow. And when the priest waved that sheaf to the Lord in the temple, what that meant was that every sheaf that that sheaf represented would also be devoted to the Lord, or, or first it would be received from the Lord. That's part of the wave offering. It would be received from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. And then it would be returned to the Lord in devotion. And that's how the Israelites had to treat all their harvest. That's how the Lord wanted his people to begin their harvest season. With that mentality in their minds, we receive it from the Lord and we devote it all to the Lord. So to be clear, the idea is not that the sheaf stood in the place of the Israelite. That's not the idea. That's the Passover lamb, we might say, standing in the place, being burnt up. The idea with the sheaf is that the Israelite was declaring that the whole harvest and the whole life that he was going to live off of the food of that harvest 
was holy to the Lord. It was devoted to the Lord. It was separated from everything that was common and earthly, and it became holy and heavenly, pressed into the Lord's service. One more thing we should emphasize is this. The first fruits of the harvest not only represented the entire harvest, it also, in a certain sense, spoke of the certainty that the rest of the harvest would be gathered in. God had brought his people this far, the beginning of the harvest season. And if the first sheaf of the harvest was gathered in, that was symbolic that God would also surely give them the rest of the harvest. The rest would follow. Now, as I said, this feast of first fruits was closely connected to the feast of Passover. The feast of Passover took place on the 14th day of the first month. The Feast of First Fruits took place two days later. And these two feasts were connected. The Feast of Passover, everyone had to go down to Jerusalem for this feast anyway. And, and for the Feast of First Fruits, they kind of worked together. You'd make one trip to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Well, the first feast, the Feast of Passover, represented the people's deliverance from Egyptian bondage on the basis of the blood of the Passover lamb. By the blood of the Lamb, the people were delivered from Egypt. And on the basis of that blood, they were given a portion in the land of Canaan. On the basis of that Passover Lamb, they were given a portion in the land flowing with milk and honey, flowing with an abundant harvest. On the basis of the blood of the Lamb, they were given the right to harvest the fruit in the land of promise. And so, on the Friday, or on the Thursday night, remember the, the Jewish calendar, their day started at night at 6 o'clock, ended the next night at 6 o'clock. So remember Jesus and his disciples, when did they observe the feast of Passover? It was the Thursday night, the night before his crucifixion. They would celebrate the Passover on the Friday. They would celebrate their deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And then two days later, the people would celebrate the Feast of first fruits, when each Israelite had to bring that sheaf of barley to the temple. And in fact, the way the people would keep the Feast of first fruits was like this. We, we read this um, from extra-biblical sources. This is what they were doing in Jesus' day. On the Friday evening, the Friday evening, so... Feast of Passover has, is coming to an end. They ate the Passover the night before on the 14th, or on the Thursday night. Think of Jesus' crucifixion, all right? I'm going to get to that in a moment. The Thursday night, they celebrated the Passover. They ate the Passover lamb. The Friday night, they would go out into the field and they would pick the part of the harvest that they would glean for this sheaf, this first sheaf that had to be brought to the temple. Then Saturday, you'd have the Sabbath day. Then Saturday night, which was really the start of the next day, after the Sabbath was over, Saturday night, we read that they would go out into the field and actually glean that sheaf. And then Sunday morning, what would they do? They would take that sheaf to the temple to give to the priest. Now, before we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, think about what was happening with Jesus and his crucifixion and all that history. Thursday night, he observes the Passover. Friday, he fulfills the Passover. 
He himself is the Passover lamb Friday morning. His blood is shed in order that God's people might be delivered from the land of Egypt. On the basis of his shed blood, God's people have now a right to enter the promised land of Canaan and enjoy the harvest that's found in the promised land of Canaan. But now consider this. That's Friday morning and Friday early afternoon. What happens Friday afternoon? Just think. As Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are preparing Jesus' body for burial, what do you think the rest of the Jews were doing at this time? Well, we learn from extra-biblical sources that the custom of the Jews, this was a feast day, right? The custom of the Jews was to follow a delegation of the Sanhedrin outside of Jerusalem, a big crowd of people, and they would watch as members of the Sanhedrin would pick the place where the first sheaf of barley harvest was to be gleaned. That's what they were doing Friday afternoon. Then, Saturday night, after the Sabbath had finished, they went out and they actually harvested that sheaf. And then what did they do Sunday morning? Easter Sunday morning. They brought that first sheaf to the temple. And what day was that? What day was that Sunday? That was Easter Sunday, the fulfillment of the Passover feast on Good Friday. And now in the Bible, you have the fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits on the Sunday, Easter Sunday. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He's also the fulfillment of the first fruits in his resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. You see how that works? That whole feast in the Old Testament was typical. Just as the Passover feast was typical in the Old Testament, they were always pointing to Jesus Christ. So the Feast of Firstfruits is pointing to Christ in this way, in his resurrection from the dead. He will be the firstfruits of God's people. And so now we get to 1 Corinthians 15, and we have these things in our mind, and we can start to understand what Paul is saying when he writes that Jesus is the firstfruits of them that slept. Jesus, we could say, is that first sheaf of grain. He's that first sheaf of grain in the sense that he's the first of the harvest. He's also the best of the harvest. And he's also representing the whole harvest. In the New Testament, Jesus himself likens God's people to a harvest. Jesus says in Matthew 9, verse 37, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. God's people are like that barley growing in the field and Jesus is the first fruits. And specifically in his resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits. And what happens to the first fruits is representative of what's going to happen to the rest of the harvest that will follow. When God raised Jesus from the dead in his body, God raised the first fruits. Christ was the first fruits as the head and representative of an entire harvest that was to follow. Just as Jesus in his resurrection from the dead was now dedicated to the Lord in his glorified body, so in his, as the first fruits, Jesus is also the guarantee that one day we too will be raised from the dead and perfectly dedicated to the Lord in a glorified body. The point is, when scriptures refer to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, it's emphasizing that Jesus' resurrection was not just the resurrection of a single man. It's the resurrection of a man who represents and stands at the head of an entire harvest of saints. 
That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. There are heretics teaching that there is no general resurrection of the body. And the Apostle Paul answers that by saying, yes, there is a general resurrection of the body for God's people because Jesus rose from the dead. And there's no denying that. And Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. Therefore, we know, based on the fact that Jesus is the first fruits, he arose on the feast of first fruits. How else can God, how clear can God communicate that to you? He is the first fruits. And that means there will surely be a resurrection from the dead for all God's people. That's the meaning of this language. And now to step back for a moment, isn't that amazing? You look at Scripture and it, it works so perfectly together. God weaves all of this history together so that it all has purpose and meaning and significance. Just think when Israel was on Mount Sinai and God was giving them the laws for the feast days, God already knew. Of course He did, but let's appreciate it. God already knew that that feast of first fruits was going to be fulfilled in the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, on Easter Sunday, two days after the Passover feast. It's amazing. This is not just, this is not man's word. This is God's word. It's, it's glorious. God's work of salvation is amazing in every detail. And here's just one more detail of it. His awful glories shine. Well, that's the meaning. Now, secondly and briefly, we should give the explanation for all of this. The question is, why is Christ the first fruits? Well, Christ is the first fruits not merely because he's the first one who rose from the dead, but he's the first fruits because he is the actual spiritual head and representative of his people. That's what Paul goes on to say in the following verses, verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The point Paul is making is, we've already said it, Jesus is not, an individual, is not just an individual man. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the appointed office bearer, standing as the mediator and head of a people chosen in, in Him from before the foundations of the world. He's the second Adam. And therefore, when He rises, all are made to rise are made alive in him that was the case with the first adam when he died when adam sinned death fell upon the entire human race a single human being brought death on the entire human race death is not natural this world was not formed by death as the evolutionist would say that whole way of thinking that whole worldview that permeates our culture is not right before Adam sinned, there was no death. There was a time when there was no death in this world. But death came into this world through the sin of one man, Adam. By the actions of a single human being 6,000 years ago, who was the head and representative of the human race, death came into the world. And the result is that all human beings in Adam are born dead in trespasses and sins. 
is that they hate God. They cannot choose the good. They do not desire the good. They are in misery and death. To use the language of the Apostle Paul, all those who were in Adam died. All men die as a consequence of Adam's activity because Adam represented them. Adam was also the organic fountain of the human race so that the corruption of Adam is passed down through the, to them uh, also because they are guilty. Uh, but the corruption passes down as a hereditary corruption because God judges all men to be guilty of Adam's sin. So all men in Adam died. And now Paul writes, And just as all died in Adam, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And again, the idea is, just as by the activity of a single human being all men died, just so by the activity of a single human being resurrection was brought to light for all those whom he represented. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And Paul isn't saying there that everyone head for head is going to be made alive. His point is simply this. Just as all whom Adam represented died in Adam, even so all whom Christ represents are made alive in him and shall be made alive in Christ. All who are in Christ shall be made alive. And that's because he represented them. He's their legal representative. He is their sheaf in the Feast of first fruits. He is the guarantee of the resurrection of all the saints. And so Paul's argument stands. That's his argument. In the rest of the chapter, is going to explain what the resurrection looks like. That's not in the scope of the sermon this morning. First, he's establishing that there is a resurrection of the dead. And what's the comfort? We've looked at the meaning, verse 20. We've looked at the explanation. What's the comfort? As Lord's Day 17 puts it, what doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? Well, that comfort comes to us on a number of fronts. First, the comfort, of course, is that we have the blessed assurance that our bodies will be one day raised from the dead. Christ is the first fruits. The first fruits guarantee that the rest of the harvest will be gathered into the treasure house. We who believe in Jesus Christ are part of the harvest. We are in Christ. And those who die in Christ shall one day be made alive. God will not leave our bodies in the grave. On the last day, God will raise our bodies out of the grave by a wonder of grace. Our bodies will be reunited with our souls. And not only will our bodies be made alive, but they will be made glorious like unto the glorified body of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus in His resurrection from the dead was gloriously devoted to God in the strength and beauty and power of a glorified body. Just as in the Feast of Firstfruits, devoted to the Lord. And Jesus, He was always devoted to the Lord, but now with a glorified body. So that will happen to us. We will be raised and we will be devoted to God in the strength and beauty and power of a glorified body. That's the comfort. That's glorious comfort because that's what we want. That's what we yearn for. Second, the comfort is that we know we are not still in our sins. That's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ be not raised, you are still in your sins. Christ is raised and we are not in our sins anymore. 
God himself witnessed to that fact. It wasn't just that Jesus took life to himself on Easter Sunday morning. He did that. But we also read in the Bible that God raised him. And God raised him as a witness and declaration that his sacrifice was the perfect covering for all our sins. We have peace with God already now. And already now we know that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not still in our sins. That's why you look to the resurrection. It tells you that. Third, the comfort and the joy is that already now we experience the power of Jesus' resurrection. As the Catechism emphasizes, and as we saw last week, and grafted into Jesus Christ through the bond of faith, we are, by the power of Christ's resurrection, raised to a new life. We have the new man sitting on the throne in our hearts. Our old man has been crucified, dead and buried, so that the the, the corruptions, so that the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us. And out of that new man, we have the new man. Out of that new man, we have hope. We can live in hope. Not hope for this life only, but hope for the life to come. As Paul finishes the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, we have the hope and the confidence, the certainty, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. We aren't persecuted for nothing. We don't live an antithetical life for nothing, beloved. We don't walk in love with our neighbor for nothing and pursue the greater way of love, as Paul exhorts in this letter. We don't fight against the lusts of the flesh for nothing. We're not spending large sums of money to give our children a Christian education for nothing. No, we know, we have the assurance that our present affliction and our present circumstances in life and our labor, our, what the life God gives us to live, it's all working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For we're not seeking an earthly city. We're seeking a heavenly kingdom that has foundations. And our inheritance in that city is assured. It is assured because Christ is risen as the first fruits of those who slept. That's comfort. That's why we meet every Sunday. And God ordained it this way. We meet on Easter Sunday every Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. This is the gospel. This is the joy that is yours. This is the comfort that is yours. Praise be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, this is the day Thou hast made. It is all of Thee, and through Thee, and to Thee. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What comfort, what joy Thou dost impart to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank Thee, Father, for this study in the Scriptures. We thank Thee for the Old Testament that sheds light on the New Testament, and that we can delve into that Old Testament history too, and and uh, glean uh, profitable instruction and comfort uh, from thy works, which thou hast done from the beginning and wilt do till the end. Thou art an awesome God. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.